No, I know what the answer is. It is the post-trailer stinger for <laughs> AMC theaters, where where she wears her rhinestone suit to the movies all by herself. All by herself, talking to herself, yes. Uh, talking about how much she loves movies and, and hot pink somehow feels good in a place like this. <laughs> That's her beat, or her post-peak. Her post-peak performance. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, a movie review podcast that dreams are made of. With me again is my co-host, Keith Foster, from San Diego, California. And you, of course, are Cassidy Robinson, and you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, this week, we're going to review the movie Beast, which is out in theaters now, uh, starring Idris Elba and a lion. And for the streaming homework, we will be reviewing the 1963 thriller Shock Corridor, uh, which is streaming on HBO Max. Have you seen and do you have an opinion of the 2007 meme that's going around lately? I don't know if I've seen it. What? I've already seen at least 12 of them. What? So, there is a meme going around, and the first one I saw was for the movie Knives Out, where people take a movie that came out, like, within the last two or three years, and then they say, if it was released in 19, or 2007, and they just take a single scene, a short clip from the movie, and then they play it over top, uh, Linkin Park song. Oh, I have seen, yeah, it's like the, the one from Transformers, the... I guess, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think I saw one for Jurassic World, and I was like, okay. I, I don't know, to me, I was like, this movie isn't better than, I guess, what you're making fun of. Right, I don't know. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I don't really have any opinions on it. I mean, I'm not mad at it, but I don't. I haven't seen one that's funny, but I've only seen the one. I didn't know this was, like, a thing. It became a thing. I, again, I don't know which one was the first one, but I have been seeing it all over the place. And, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. I Like, today, somebody said, if the movie came out in 2007 and they did it with the final scene um, from No Country for Old Men with uh, Tommy Lee Jones on, you know, at the kitchen table, which is... I guess supposed to be like postmodern because that's the, that movie was released in 2007. Okay. So that's kind of funny though, because yeah. it's also like, yeah. So it's one of those things that like makes me feel really old because well, I, we are old. Right. Um, in fact, I just turned 37. Yeah. So, oh yeah. Happy birthday, by the way. Belated. Thank you. Yeah. Two days ago. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I turned 37 here in. About a month and a half. Yeah, but it's one of those things where I watched, where I saw it and I was like, I don't know, that doesn't feel that long ago to me, or even out of reach of something that could be in any of these movies. Have you seen the meme that's like, it's like a timeline? Welcome to the, like, the new uh, MacGuffin segment, Have You Seen the Meme? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's like, um, uh... You know, from 2020 to now is the plague years. 
right. from uh, 2016 to 2020 was 2016. And, but there was this thing, right? Like, they just discovered that the Earth is actually accelerating the speed at which it's uh, spinning, so time is literally compressing. Huh. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Okay, okay, so I found the meme. Uh, (laughs) And it's from the years 2010 to 2014 were nostalgia. I guess. The years 2015 to 2019 was the year 2016. And the year 2020 to 2022 was the plague years. And then somebody else posted an addendum to that that was 1995 to 2010 was 10 years ago. I mean, that feels right. That's the joke. Right. We don't have to belabor the point. I get it. We're getting older. Memes are weird. Uh, the earth is spin <laughs> is accelerating, apparently. And uh, the science behind time travel in Superman is, is accurate. Okay, so I have... Whole other the whole other ass theories about that, but um. <laughs> uh, let's go ahead and start talking about movies. Go ahead and open up IMDb. Okay. Every once in a while, I'll throw some actors at you, and we'll talk about you know actors who maybe haven't been as active lately, or have seen their peak come and gone, or whatever, and then we, you know, throw them some advice over the type of roles they should be looking for. Um, this is kind of a take on that, but instead of giving them advice, um, calling this post-peak, I'm going to name four actors, okay. and we are going to each name what, what film was their peak, or television okay. project. I mean, that can change for some people. Sure. And... What is their best movie or television project since their peak without it being a full blown comeback? Like there's no, no Matthew McConaughey's, not even a Nick Cage. You know, I'm talking four people who have definitely peaked and have yet to come back to that level again. And when we say they peaked, we're talking about their career. We're not talking about that, like them as a human or their. No, I mean, a lot of these people. You know, some of these will be harder than others to to figure out because even though they maybe not reach that level of success again, there might be projects that we've really enjoyed from them. Sure, yeah. And they're all still very capable of, you know, finding that again if of given re- the right. Of repeating. Repeating, yes. Yeah, some some people are Tetons. Some people have uh, have a few peaks. In their range. Other people, other careers are Mount Everest and it's just the one. All right. Uh, go ahead and pull open on IMDb. Okay. Jim Carrey. Oh. You might not even need it. I mean, if you, if you think you know off the top of your head, that's fine. Hmm. So part of this is where we're figuring out what their peak was, right? Yeah. So the first of all, where, what movie do you think was peak Jim Carrey? Well, I mean, here's the thing. I think Jim Carrey kind of peaks early, uh, but you know, the nineties, you, you couldn't go anywhere and not see him, right? You know, mm-hmm. fucking Ace, Vin- oh, holy shit. Ace Ventura, The Mask and Dumb and Dumber all came out in 1994. You know, it, it's, 
it's not hard to say that his peak was the 90s. Uh, Batman Forever, Ace Ventura 2, The Cable Guy. Uh, okay, so I think The Cable Guy was maybe the end of his peak. Because, you know, he had this massive run in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then that was sort of this more artsy, risky movie. Uh, and it, it didn't turn out so well for him. Uh, you know, he follows it up with Liar Liar and Truman Show, which those were, I think, both pretty big movies. But after Cable Guy, I, you know, he could not, he wasn't headlining three movies in one year. You know what I mean? No, that, that's correct. Um, so what what would be your official answer for that then? I would say he, he peaked by 1995. With, do you have a particular film or project? Probably, uh, Let's say Batman Forever, right? It's huge. It's a franchise movie. Uh, literally everyone in the world saw it. He transcended sort of comedy fame and got full-on big blockbuster movie. So I'm, I'm going to say Batman Forever was his peak. Yeah, that's pretty wild to say, because even just two years before that, he would not have gotten that role. Yeah. If, you're, if we're just going by numbers... For just yeah. going by bankability and star power, um, mm-hmm. you're probably right that by the end of the nineties, other comedians start to, uh, you, you could, I would say, I would say Adam Sandler was the one to really supplant him. Yeah. By and, the time he gets to 96, 97. Exactly. And just as far as being like the comedy guy. Sure. Okay. Um, however, I don't know if I would necessarily say that that's his creative peak because he did take a bunch of riskier projects in the end of the 90s. And while those movies maybe didn't make as much money, I think he was still in control I mean, he of the was, reins of his career. That's true. And he was still pretty, even though he might not have been number one anymore, He, I would say he was still pretty bankable till. The early 2000s. So right. maybe... If you if you think... This doesn't count because it's not really a movie or a... It's not an acting role, per se. But I would say his peak as like, wow, he is just a celebrity. Um, was his bizarre appearance at the MTV Movie Awards as like the hippie character? I don't really know. He accepted an award, uh, I I I forget for what movie, um, might have been Man on the Moon, uh, Courtney Love was in the audience and was cheering him on. Okay. And he was in, like, this fishnet top and, like, leather Jim Morrison pants and this long-haired wig and being extremely method comedy with the character. And I just remember that being a huge moment, like television moment. Do you um, remember what year that was? It would have been around 99, 2000. So, okay. Okay. Um, so, so I could, I could maybe buy Man on the Moon being his peak. If he was going to get an Oscar, it would have been for that, right? Everything. He was campaigning pretty hard for it, but I'm actually going to say, I was going to say Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind because I felt like that was um, a very big and 
well-liked movie and, again, was a big Oscar campaign push. But before that movie, he had a string of duds. Bruce Almighty was a big hit. That was a big, that was a, that was a, uh, a pretty big comedy hit, but that was just kind of a keeping him steady. But like the Majestic, the Grinch, even me, myself, and Irene. I would, I would call the Grinch also a hit. Uh, I think that, but that's what I mean is if we're talking peak, right? If, if we're, you know, uh, Mountain has a gradual incline, it hits a peak and then it has a gradual decline. Yeah, so right. in that case, I would actually agree with you on Man on the Moon. Even though I okay. like, I you know personally, I like Eternal Sunshine more. Well, it's a, I mean, it's a great movie, but but career wise, he was starting to his his star had lost a little bit of luster by that point. Yeah, I think for the sake of the game, I'm going to keep my answer, <laughs> Eternal Sunshine, because. Uh, it's just too easy to say the peak was Man on the Moon. His best movie since was Eternal Sunshine. For the no, sake no, of the, that's fair. for the sake of the game, I'm going to say the peak is Eternal Sunshine for me, and then for his best performance since that peak, that gets harder. Yeah, yes, that was his last for a while. Really, movie that was like, oh wow, that's a really good Jim Carrey movie. Uh, yes. So all right, all right. I'll buy your thesis. We'll say 2004 was his peak. Uh, so anything past 2004. Okay. So then I'll ask you first. What do you think is his best acting performance or role or project since Eternal Sunshine? You know, it has been a lot of duds since then. Yeah. Um, I would say it's probably between. Uh, I love you, Philip Morris, which is a pretty fun little movie, and his role in Kick-Ass Two. I think he's one of the best things in Kick-Ass Two, mm-hmm. but that movie wasn't great. Um, it was okay. <sighs> Ooh, this is hard. Um, I was going to say I love you, Philip Morris. I thought there yeah. might have been something I was forgetting, so I'm looking again. But that seems to be the clear standout for me. I, yeah, I think that's the last time it seemed like he was a lead that kind of mattered. Right. It, if, he brought something to the project, like a certain, um, you know, it seemed yeah. like people were excited to see him in that movie, sort of an edgier comedy, um, with those indie sensibility, him playing, you know, across from, uh, Ewan McGregor, uh, is a gay character, but not like a, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a, uh, uh, story about that per se. It's more about like this really troubled relationship that's like involved in crime. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good movie. I, I think yeah, it's, it's a really, it was surprisingly funny and endearing and, mm-hmm. um, and, and a fairly restrained performance from Jim Carrey without being boring. Yeah, it, there's a there's a quirky tone to that film yeah. that maybe overplays that hand a little too much. It's still, I, I mean, but, that movie has a joke that I still think about constantly uh, when Ian McGregor is eating the dove the dove chocolates, and he like he'll, he reads the rappers that have those like life affirming messages, and he just like keeps crying at everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I eat Dove chocolates, I think of that moment, and it's hilarious. It's really, 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's probably his, his big, his best Jim Carrey performance post his peak. Right. And it doesn't have to be a leading, uh, role in, in the, in the case of the rest of these, but in that case, I think that works. I agree with you with Kick-Ass too. That probably would come second for me. I just, the, the movie is so whatever that uh, yeah, even it, he can't really save it with an interesting performance. Yeah, but he is very good in that movie, and yeah. he is kind of its saving grace. If there's um, a reason to see it, it's for him. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of a bummer that the rest of the movie is... I mean, Kick-Ass in general as a property has some issues after the first one, but... Um, for sure. The comic book included. Okay, uh, we'll move on. Um, this one's maybe a little bit more difficult. Parker Posey. Oh, okay. Hmm. Let's see. It's been a while since I've seen her. Yeah. Okay, what is Parker Posey's peak? I like the alliteration there. <laughs> yeah, she was also another Gen X, you know, celebrity of the 90s. Yeah. Uh, she had some hits post-90s, but certainly few and far between. And again, you don't have to think of it in terms of leading roles. She often wasn't a leading role anyway. Yeah. No, she, yeah, I would not describe it as a leading role in just about, I mean, she's almost always that, like, friend who... Right. Uh, okay. Or, or friend of me, usually. I'm going to say that her peak was probably best in show. Oh. In 2000. You know what? I've never seen that movie. Oh, she, I mean, it's fun. She's great in it. No, I know. I'm, I'm really bad there. I've only seen a couple Christopher Guest things. Um, but, uh, you're probably right. That was a, that was a big movie. Yeah. And, and probably Christopher Guest's biggest movie to date. Uh, I'd have to go through his thing separately, but I mean, right after was Josie and the Pussycats, which was decent, but I think that's probably kind of a cult the- hit. Yeah, I, I don't think it was as, as appreciated as much at the time. It was found its audience later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty confident that 2000 Best in Show was her peak. Okay, I was going to say, same year, Scream 3. Okay, yeah, I mean, like I said, same year, so 2000, but... um Yeah. I think Best in Show is a little more indicative of the rest of her career. Right. It, it, it's more... Well, I mean, both movies are for different reasons. I think Best in Show, Christopher Guest movies are all built around improv for the most part and, um, you know, very loose scripting, so the actors really get to showcase what they do uh, comedically. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the Scream franchise at that time, um, you had those very witty, dialogue-heavy Kevin Williamson screenplays that I think also play up to a different aspect of her performance. Totally, yeah. And she's very oh. much playing a Parker Posey character in that movie. Oh, for sure. Okay, um, so we're in agreement that 2000 is her peak year, at least. Yeah, what is the her best performance post-peak? I, I, there's a lot of stuff I have not seen. Um, I have an answer for this, but I'll let you. Okay. I, I have an answer that is probably different than yours. Um, 
I don't know. I'm almost certain it is. Okay, what's your answer? This is a little difficult to talk about because we are discussing a canceled celebrity. But she was in a... Yes, she was in a four-episode arc of Louie that was not only her best stuff she's done since her peak as a movie actress, but probably her best acting I've ever seen. And a very standout character. I don't remember her a lot from Louie. There's only one arc that I... There's only a few distinct episodes that I remember from Louie. And, I mean, that's... I think we've talked about it on the podcast before, but that's all the more heartbreaking of that's all the more reason why everything with Louie is heartbreaking. Right. Because he definitely is talented, but he's a piece of shit. Does the talent outweigh the piece of shit? That's for you to decide as a consumer. And but I'm not, Louis, I'm not saying anything yeah, yeah. about him, as, you know, as a writer or anything. I'm just talking about her performance in those episodes. And you may, uh, I believe she was mostly featured in season two. Um, she was a, she worked at a bookstore, like a small corner bookstore, and he had sort of like a flirty relationship with her. And then it culminates in finding out that she's living with terminal brain cancer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it becomes like a whole thing. Uh, um, yeah. Again, Louie is a great show. It, it's, there were so many good performances. Like I will always and forever remember the Robin Williams episode like that mm-hmm. one. Cause he, he committed suicide not long after that episode. And it's right. that whole one is like about death and it's, it's weird. It's weird to watch. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I'm not going to deny that, that she is great in that. And that was a good substantial role for her. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I think my favorite thing she's done in a long time is she has a, it's a small character and it's only in a few episodes, but of the, um, the show search party, which was an HBO max original. Um, if you have not watched search party, I do not want to say too much about it uh, because there are so many twists and turns and surprises that you will literally never see coming. Um, but I'll, I'll just give you the general premise, uh, uh, at least of the first season, a, you know, sort of bored post-college, uh, elder millennial, uh, is not satisfied with her life. And she sees that someone that she used to go to school with has gone missing. And so she decides that she is going to find this person and, yeah, everything else I'm, I'm not going to say, but it's a great show. It is genuinely brilliant. Uh, and she, again, she has a very, it's a pretty small part, but she has, uh, she owns this like holistic store. And again, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give away too much fun stuff, but she's great in it. And it's a very fun Parker Posey performance that definitely plays to her strengths. Um, but I mean, that show itself is all about let's get the craziest celebrity cameos we can and give them these insane performances. Uh, highly okay. recommend. Yeah. And she's been doing a lot of more television lately and she's probably been done stuff as good or better than what I remember. 
but um, that was, you know, all I could give as far as what I've seen. So sure, yeah. I mean, that's that's yeah. If you haven't seen it, you haven't seen it. Robert De Niro, and I think this is actually the actor that made me think of this game. I I feel like Robert De Niro. Let me pull up his thing, but I feel like he maybe kind of had two peaks. Oh, he's had a few lulls in his career, but there's a point when I think he definitely, where he was no longer a bankable name. Like, you could not guarantee the quality of a movie based on his involvement in it. Yeah. Okay, let's see. Let's try to... Well, yeah, you could say there was his first big wave from, like, the early 70s to the early 80s, and then again through the 90s, and yeah. He had this period in, like, the 70s yeah, where he he was, like, the fucking guy. Right. See, I think for a career this long, you have to kind of think of things in terms of, like, the launch period versus yeah. career period. What we were saying with, with uh, Jim Carrey, he had one year where he was in four of the biggest movies of the year. Uh, yeah. That's just like yeah, a launch. That's kind of like, you know, he goes from Godfather to Taxi Driver to Deer Hunter to Raging Bull, you know, like... Yeah. Okay, let's see. <laughs> I do love him in Brazil. Um, <laughs> ah, damn, okay. Uh, but, I, yeah, I think I would say, though, that his peak was probably the 90s still. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to say that his peak was heat. Yeah. 1995. Maybe we shouldn't think of it in those terms, though, because I feel, I feel like even though, rather than thinking about it in terms of when things taper down, we should think, think of, it, of it, yeah, we ter- think of it more as like once they hit that lull, yeah. once they're, yeah, not, not the decline, but once they're, once they're cooling off, right? Yeah. Once they're I would say that changes the answer. Because uh, I agree. I, I would agree. Because even I, after I, Heat, he has like five or six pretty big movies, very good roles. Yeah, like Copland, Jackie Brown. Wag the uh, Dog. Yeah, absolutely. Those, yeah. You, you um, don't sniff at those. Let's see. I, I get what you're saying. So I would say, you know, his his cooling off period probably mm-hmm. began for me with, I'll say, Meet the Fockers. Right? Because, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I didn't enjoy the first Meet the Parents when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but that movie wore out its welcome very quickly. For me, anyways. Mm. I would uh, I would uh, place that a little before that. And I would say, for me, it's Analyze This. I'll, I'll say Meet the Parents. Meet the Parents was like... Because again, I, I think he was good in that role. It was it was kind of when he flipped that switch to I can play this tough guy persona that I've been so known for as comedy, and and to me, that's after that is when he it seemed like he got lazy. Yeah. So so let let's say uh, yeah. I mean, analyze this was ninety nine. Meet the parents was two thousand. They're they're very close together. Um, so let's just say anything after 2000. Yeah, I think it was uh, sort of the one-two punch of those two movies that derailed him. Yeah. 
um, for a while. Um, and he's in a lot of, like, genre stuff, like, not necessarily embarrassment-level stuff, but, you know, I mean, movies like uh, Godsend, uh, whatever, you know, uh, The Good Shepherd. Yeah, he's yeah. he's in a bunch of, like, little dumb thing there, little dumb thing there, just working. Okay, I think I have my answer. Okay, what is your answer for... Best role post-peak. I'm going to say uh, Joker as uh, Murray Franklin, the, the talk show host. I think... One uh, scene. Yeah, but it's it's good, and he's not he's not playing himself for self-parody, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like the, I mean, The Irishman was the same year, and it's just like, okay, we're just doing Goodfellas again, but not as good. Um... I don't know. I know there's people that like that movie. I did not care for it. But, you know, it's not Dirty Grandpa. It's not... It, it, it seems like he's got a character that he can kind of sink himself into. Yeah. Um, I don't remember him in American Hustle or Silver Lightning Playbook. I remember those are good movies. Um, yeah, I'm going to say Joker is my favorite performance, at least, in a long time. Okay. Um, For me, it's a tie between Stardust and... I do remember him being very charming in that. Yeah, and it, it actually kind of seemed like a return to something like he did in Brazil. Yeah. where I mean, that whole movie is just charming as hell. Right. It's a comedic role, but it's not him... It's not him a, making fun of himself. Yeah, it's, just, it's not self-parody. It's, it's, yeah. it's a little bit more creative than that. There's an actual character there. Yeah, I can see that. For me, it's between that and Silver Linings Playbook. Actually, I remember when I saw Silver Linings Playbook, you know, besides the fact that I really liked the movie, I was like, oh, wow, Robert De Niro is acting in this. I haven't seen that in a while. I vaguely remember that. It's been so long. I haven't seen that movie since it came out. He's like the dad, right? Yes. he, He plays Bradley Cooper's father in that, who is obsessed with the... Eagles? That's right, that's right. Philadelphia? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... He's obsessed with the I've, Eagles, and he he's like a, a, a sports gambling addict, and they play at the idea that, you know, these issues that Cooper has, these, you know, the uh, these emotional chemical imbalances or whatever, were probably hereditary and just never addressed with the Robert De Niro character. But he's yeah, coping yeah. in a different way. Now that you're kind of talking through it, I, I would, I think it's a subtle performance, and he doesn't, yeah. you know, he only gets a couple big scenes in the movie. Otherwise, it's a, it's a very supportive performance, but it's kind of perfect. He's actually very good in American Hustle as well. I just don't love that movie like other people did, and um, he's not in it very much at all. But when he is on I, it, that was the first time I saw Robert De Niro on a, since the '90s, where he was scary. Uh, in American Hustle, um, uh, but uh, but I'm, for my official answer, I'm going to say b- between Stardust and Silver Linings. Um, only I can't really decide because they're so different. But, yeah, yeah. Um, I but mean, those are both good performances from Robert De Niro post peak. Okay, uh, final person in the game. Okay, Nicole Kidman. Oh, fuck. Okay, 
I think I okay. I think her peak is or or her. I feel like this one's actually easier than I. What is her last film as a prestige actor? So, I mean, she's been in a lot of prestige movies, but there was, you know, there's a point when they're writing the role for her versus her having to go and audition for it and get the role just like anybody else. Uh, so I think her, her, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I would say her peak was probably between Eyes Wide Shut and Moulin Rouge. I mean, uh, 99 and, and 2001. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to say her peak was probably Moulin Rouge. Hmm. And then, you know, like the others was, it's a good movie, but it wasn't as like, you know, panic room <laughs> genre films. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I never saw the hours. Uh, I mean, cold mountain, she did get an Oscar nom for, but you know, it was called, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of like little critic darlings in here as well. Yeah, um, okay, so I, I'm seeing the beginning of the end. Maybe that's easier to pinpoint. Yeah. Uh, was between, like, you know, the Stepford Wives and Bewitched, right? You know, that's when shit mm-hmm. was starting to be, like, a bunch of duds. The Invasion, Golden Compass didn't... And here's the thing, some of these movies I have not seen, but I just remember it was, like... It just seemed like kind of dud after dud after dud for her. Definitely movies that did not do as well as I'm sure she wanted. Uh, right. Australia. Did anybody see Australia? Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think the last movie where she had some heat was maybe Cold Mountain, but I'm going to say, I'm going to say her peak was Moulin Rouge. Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to say. It is the hours. Um, I, okay, I, she didn't she get nominated for that as well. That's fair. I think she did. Yeah, uh, and again, it's another. It's who did who did that movie? It's a director I kind of loathe. Yeah, Stephen Daldry. Um, and the hours is probably his best movie, which isn't saying anything. Okay. All right. Um, all right. All right. I'll but give you, that was a big movie. Of- she was. A big part of its of its success. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, well, I'll, I'll give you the, the hours. Uh, again, I probably wasn't including that because I never saw it, but I do mm. remember uh, a lot of hype, especially around her performance. So, I'll, I'll give you that. Maybe it was her peak. Okay. Um, as far as okay, post peak, yeah. so for me, it's probably between. You know, I'm just gonna say it. I think it was probably The Northman that came out this year. She's great in it. Mm-hmm. It gives her a lot to do. I, I think that's kind of the problem is after that, she doesn't get a lot of roles where she's like, has a lot to do. Um, Aquaman, get the fuck out of here. Uh, <laughs> I think you might say killing of the sacred deer, but I liked her in that. Okay. I... But it's not the type of movie that she absolutely positively had to be in. Like, yeah, you I, could put a Laura Linney or somebody else of her age bracket in there and it would fit in just as well. You know what? No, I know what the answer is. It is the post trailer stinger for <laughs> AMC theaters where, where she wears her rhinestone suit to the movies all by herself. All by herself, talking to herself. Yes. Uh, talking about how much she loves movies and, and hot pick. 
somehow feels good in a place like this. <laughs> That's her be- or her post-peak. Her post-peak performance. I think there was re- recently a Vulture article where somebody told her that that's become like a a living meme and like people cheer when the trailer comes <laughs> up and they repeat the lines back at the screen and she had no idea. Is it Mormon time? <laughs> that's way better than Mormon time. Okay. That- uh yeah, I'm I'm going to say The Northman. She was fantastic in it. It's a great movie. It was very much like a oh, yeah, Nicole Kidman like fucking finally. And I didn't no, she had it in her. I actually, when when I saw the casting and she, that she was going to be in the movie, I was sort of worried. Not because I thought that, or think that she's terrible or anything, but I just, like, I don't know. But, but, like, but is she going to fit is, in in that kind of environment? Like, you know what well, I mean? Is she too big of a star to sort of blend in? And She's such a big star, but she's just kind of been a placeholder for so long. Right, well, like, and they use that to her... To her to her benefit, it becomes part of the character, and um, yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. It's like the fact that it's Nicole Kidman makes that role better. Like she's her performance is so fucking good. The casting is so brilliant. Yeah, it just it to me it just worked on every level. Hmm. Hmm. So I could go a few different routes here. I mean, immediately after. Uh, the hours, which is what I said her peak was. Immediately, she does Dogville with Lars von Trier, which is probably my favorite Lars von Trier movie. Um, largely because of her performance. But I'm, I'm actually not going to count that because it's so close to the same era, the same time. Is that the weird one with incest? No, that's the one that's, it's shot kind of like a stage play. It's all on a, it's all on a naked sound stage. It's like, and what am I, what movie the whole, am I thinking? the whole, it's like a period piece, but the whole town is drawn out on the floor with chalk lines and everything's labeled. So yes, I think that movie's brilliant, but I'm not going to say that one because it is literally right after the hours. Uh, oh, she was good in Boy Erased. No, she wasn't. Yeah, she was. No, that, that, that was terribly miscast and she, she had a ridiculous wig in it and she, was so campy it almost like brought down the whole movie with her. Um, I was only half watching it while Ashley was watching it. No, that's like the prime example of them using her completely wrong, uh, in my opinion. Um, I, uh, I mean, I think the casting her as Lucille Ball is like the ultimate. Yeah, I mean, eh, same ballpark, same ballpark. Um, you're not wrong with the Northman. That might be it. That might be my answer as well, but I felt like I had another. Okay, actually, here it is. So, if it's not the Norseman, right, which is her totally owning the entire power of her celebrity in that role, mm-hmm. and just, you know, Care Bear stare blasting it out of the screen at you, yeah, all the you're just making my case for me, but yes, okay. Yes, so it's if North. it's not that, um, I'm gonna say the Paperboy, which has the same exact problem I have with with uh, a lot of her post peak roles, which is, that is the one where she's fucking Zac Efron. Yes, uh, Lee Daniels movie, and it is Lee Daniels that is mostly Daniels. 
it's a totally camp performance. And I think that's the thing, right? It's like, if she's not directed right at this stage in her career, so if she, if she's not directed correctly, she easily slips into camp, yeah. which is, of course, why the AMC thing is perfect on every level. Um, yeah. The paperboy plays up to that intentionally. Now, I think there's kind of a weird situation going on, maybe an exploitive situation where she doesn't know that that's what Lee Daniels is getting out of her, but that's what he's getting out of her. I don't know if she's as in on it as he is. I mean, that's, that's not fair. I, I, I don't know, but yeah, I, I, I do know when I've seen her like in Boy Erased or like, uh, maybe even a movie like Stoker, which kind of does something similar. Um, or the AMC thing. I know that she's definitely not in on it in those cases. With the Paperboy, that movie is so over the top and so melodramatic and so sweaty and sexy and weird and gross that it, it, it's kind of, it's a, it's a role for the ages. I, it might be my favorite Lee Daniels movie, even above Precious. You're not, you have not convinced me. The Northman it is. <laughs> we don't have to have the same answer. It's one or the other. I think the Norseman, she definitely is in full control of what's happening you there. You calling and it the Norseman, but it's the Northman. It's the man from the North, not uh, the man well, he, from the Norse. They're all Norsemen. In that role, she's definitely in control and is in yeah. clear communication with her director and DP. And and with uh, the paperboy, she arguably is not, but still makes her for a very entertaining performance nonetheless. All right. Let's go ahead and start talking about the movie that we watched this week. Let's talk about Beast. Uh, describe it to me. What happens in the movie Beast? Okay, so Beast is about um, Idris Elba and his two daughters are taking sort of a pilgrimage to uh, their mother's homeland in Africa after she recently passed away from cancer. Um, they meet up with uh, an old family friend played by Charlotte Copley, who takes them out on safari, seeing wildlife, they're seeing rhinos, they're seeing giraffes. Um, what they don't realize is that there is a killer man-eating lion on the loose uh, that is killing specifically for revenge, uh, specifically hunting poachers that slaughtered its family. And they are sort of caught in the middle of this situation and find themselves just having to survive. Yeah. So it's a very simple premise. This is yeah. a animal attack thriller. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to watch this movie when I saw the trailers is because it feels sort of like the type of movie they don't make anymore. These are just yeah. high concept kind of things. Right. So there were a bunch of the, especially after jaws, there was a string of these type of movies, whether it was yeah. like grizzly or the orca. Piranha, orca piranha and alligator in 1980. I want to say maybe 79. Um, uh, we can throw Cujo in there. Killer animal movies. Killer animal. There was a whole string, almost a sub-sub-genre of killer dog movies. <laughs> uh, including a film by uh, 
a film by Sam Fuller, who we'll later talk about when we talk about Shock Corridor. Um, Did you ever watch The Ghost in the Darkness, the the killer lion movie of the 90s with Val Kilmer and um, Michael Douglas? Yes, I did. I've never seen it, but I remember remember the trailers. I think I... It was when Val Kilmer was very into a sweaty, holding a rifle sweaty with, like, tranquilizers, because it's, like, (laughs) around the time of Dr. Moreau and stuff. Right. He probably just walked from one set to the other. Yeah. No, yeah, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's, there was, it was a type of movie I was excited to see and rent and get into, one of these type of genre things. Well, they're, they're monster movies, but the monster is just a creature we already... It, it's not inventing, like, an alien or some right. kind of, you know, it's just, what if nature, you know, what if this was the worst lion ever, or what if this is the worst shark ever, what if this is the worst... Orca ever, you know, it's, it's just that extreme yeah. nature survive. It's like survivalist, but not boring because it has a monster in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a man versus the wild kind of scenario. Yeah, and are we, are we including Liam Neeson versus wolves in the gray? I am, which is actually a really underrated movie. That's a really good movie. Um, yeah, so I, I I went into this movie just wanting to watch Idris Elba fight a lion, and that yeah, happens in this movie. That. Yeah, um, it fulfills you know the promise of the premise. It does what it says on the tin. Um, I guess the question then is: Does director Baltazar Comacher does he endear the premise with? Uh, the right amount of thrills and chills, and does he fulfill the genre? Yeah. So what I'm going to say, I, I'm going to just give you my general thoughts on this movie, and then we can go into more detail. Okay. I think this movie is not terribly well written, but directed very well. Okay. I There's a lot of script issues I had with this movie. There's a lot of you know, exposition dumps. There's a lot of ex- literally explaining the fucking, like what happens at the end of the movie at the end of the movie. And I'm like, okay, we like, we all just saw it. Right. Uh, right. There's a, there's a lot of very convenient. This is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm, you know, I care about my daughters so much. Like, yeah, they're your daughters. Like we get it. Like that's <laughs> enough. Um, so there, I, I had a lot of issues with the script, mm-hmm. but, I think it's directed very well. I think that um uh Baltasar Kumakar is really good at setting up these scenes of tension. Uh there's particularly there's a lot of these follow cam moments mm-hmm. that I think create these scenes of tension and like you there's just kind of this general sense through the whole movie that that these characters are being watched because of the way the camera sort of follows them. Uh, and it just leads to that feeling of being hunted. Uh, yeah. So I think it's, it's a, uh, all right script. It's whatever. It's just a monster script. Uh, but I, I, I think it's done well. I think it's, it's delivered as well as you could do that script. And part of that is the director. Part of that is Idris Elba and those girls just fully embracing the situation, like the premise of the movie. Yeah, I think he just is really good in this, and, um, you know, he plays a doctor, 
So he feels a little bit more responsibility for when other people in their party or when they run into other people who are being attacked or have been attacked or about to be attacked, you know, there's sort of a Hippocratic oath. The Hippocratic oath. Yeah, Yeah. that takes over in him. And he has not only, you know, is he always on the lookout for supplies and water and things like that. There's almost a video gaming element to some of this, but... uh, A little bit, yeah. But there's, uh, as a character, it makes him, it makes him a little bit more interesting. I will agree. I think that the, um, the screenplay, I think the screenplay and maybe even the filmmaker has grander ambitions for what this really is with the cancer subplot, you know, the losing of the wife. We see these like dream sequences when, uh, when he's running out of water and he's hallucinating or he's about to pass out or whatever, he starts to see these like flashbacks of, of the, when he met his wife in, in this area of Africa. And they're like, you know, sort of, but it's like blurry. pseudo sort of connecting with, the, you know, you know, connecting with his ancestors and like, you know what I mean? Like connecting with his roots sort of thing. Right. I, and, you know, I don't feel, it feels a little cheap. Yeah. It's a little. I like, wouldn't even say that that's necessarily an issue because I feel like that's already doing the job just well, by that, the nature of who those characters are. The, the, the problem is that's, the, the, that's my point with the movie in general. Right. Like, there's, there's sort so of a much- lack of subtlety in the way that he, that they try and weave these, these themes in. Um, I think it's a bigger problem in dialogue. Uh, particularly oh, I agree. with, I agree. particularly these out of nowhere arguments that Idris Elba gets in with his older teenage daughter. Where well, there there are these arguments that are so expository too. It's like they're expository. The reason I'm fighting with you is because of this thing that is very specific to this situation that we're in right now. Right? Yeah, and, and, and like, okay. they come off kind of clunky, and they and un- unearned, and they don't really do the character any favors. It, it makes her feel very obnoxious when they're in life, literal life and death situations where they're counting seconds between these attacks and, and, you know, opportunities to move and, and hydrate and get into the right places and blah, blah, blah. You know, these scenes that are supposed to be filled with tension, sometimes the air gets, you know, squeaked out of the balloon a little bit whenever we have to stop and he, they start getting in an argument about like, well, you left mom and blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah. There's yeah. like three or four times in the movie. I'm like, girl, you have a lion hunting you right now. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. If I but was that, in this situation, I wouldn't care how good of terms I was in with my adult authority figure. I would just want to be protected. Yes, absolutely. And the last thing on my mind would be like uh, some weird power play between me and a dead parent. <laughs> For yeah, and that's what I mean when I'm saying I I feel like the screenplay has some some issues, but I do think in general the movie does a good enough job of sort of making up for that. Like I, I, I was still finding myself getting sort of wrapped up in the situation. And, uh, you know, because these scenes of action, I think are so well shot. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the way, again, the sort of the way we're following these characters feels so life or death, you know, like there's a sequence in particular where, um, Idris Elba has to like go out and find some keys from from yeah. uh, uh, these poachers, and 
you don't ever really see what happened to the poachers, uh, but you see sort of the aftermath of that, and and you, you know, the whole time you're just sort of thinking, get the fuck back in the jeep, get the fuck, you know what I mean? Like, get back right. in the jeep, get back in the jeep. That's what I say when I mean that I think the director is maybe pulling a little bit more weight here than the screenplay. Right. Well, I think yes. I I, I think he's better at fulfilling the genre than he is at at um, transcending it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And and as far as you know, the reason why I went to go see the movie, which is just to see a man versus lion attack movie. <laughs> um, I mostly got what I what I wanted out of it. There's a few very good set pieces in the film. The one that you mentioned is is really good, particularly the ones at night. Um, and I think the you know towards the end, there's a couple of good ones as well. Uh, the steady cam stuff, the like those those long single takes or what appear to be single takes, or might be hidden cuts, but uh, you know this this wandering camera style. Um, is cool, but I think he leans on it a bit too much in certain, some cases. And I think that there's, once we get to the third time, one. the third time, like the first few times I was like, oh wow, we haven't had a cut for a while. That, this is kind of cool. And then the third or fourth time he's doing that in a scene, I'm like, okay, it, it is starting to feel a little bit more like a gimmick now. And also, there's certain things you can do in editing to maximize tension that you can't do if you're leaving everything in camera or trying to make it look like you're leaving everything in camera. And there's some places where I think that style actually sags the tension as opposed to maximize it. Um, I think more gonna, so I towards think the gonna... middle of, of the movie, but uh, I think I'm going to disagree with you on that one. I think, I think, for my money, I felt the tension through the whole thing, and uh, I don't know. I, ne- I never, I never felt like it wore out its welcome. I was just like, okay, that's just this kind of movie. That's just how it's shot. And for me, I, I don't know. I think it made a lot of those scenes way more tense. So right, but you were well aware while watching it that it was a choice. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like you're like thinking it. at those points, you're thinking, oh. There's, you know, the presence of of a directorial style and in, in the approach. Well, yes, but I'm also and that thinking, doesn't in no, and of but itself I'm, but make I'm more, it a problem. But but I'm more thinking, yeah, line wouldn't do that, or I'm more thinking, yeah, you couldn't catch that fucking snake. Fuck you. <laughs> or or I'm more think, you know what I mean? Like for me, the- I'm fine with Super Lion. Like there's, you know, there's a few but times that, in the but movie. But that's my point. He, it's Super Lion. Yeah. But but he can't find him when it's up a tree. Like there's moments where I'm like, no, a, a fucking cat. Like I have four cats. <laughs> they have incredible senses of smell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there there were moments when I'm like, show this lion being more sadistic. You know, like if it wants to fuck with people, that makes more sense. But literally, Idris Elba went. You know, even surviving. More than a, a 30 second fight with a lion is ridiculous the way oh, they portrayed it. Yeah, the, the final conflict is, I don't think handled all that well. No, um, but, and, and that's sort of my issue with the movie in general is like, the lion never felt, the lion never felt specific enough. 
what separates this lion from the bear in the revenant or uh you know what i mean like it it didn't act enough like a lion it did a it did a lot of stuff that was convenient for the script that was convenient for the sort of moment. Yeah, it's defi- it, there's definitely. I think we can agree there's two movies at odds here. There's yeah. the do we want this to be more of a family drama that happens to take place in the middle of a lion attack, or do we want this to be a full on genre piece? And yes. I think that if a maybe somebody. Who, who leaned into the B-movie quality of it a bit more, might have been able to maximize the monster movie aspect of it. And would have, even if it didn't seem realistic, um, it might have been scarier. Or been, fit in a few more. I hear what you're saying, but the scares were never my problem. The tension was never my problem in the movie. All the All the moments where I was supposed to feel tense, I felt tense. So to me, that's that wasn't the issue. The issue, right? Was, but there, are, but but there are I, times during the movie when it felt like that wasn't the movie's primary concern, even though it's obviously the primary concern. Yeah, but it can. To me, that felt more like script issues. Like I did not. Right. I mean, I, fucking, I'm I'm saying I didn't that need an origin story for the lion. Like, oh, I think the one we got was fine. And in, in fact, I think that plays into the B movie thing even better. Like the fact that, you know, his pride was killed by poachers. And so now he has to, you know, he's hunting for human blood. I'm all for it. Super lion, Jaws lion. Let's do it. Jaws a revenge lion even. Oh uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm, no, yeah, I, I I'm totally fine. I'm totally fine with that. Um, that's the movie I want to see. Uh, but, yeah, we're in agreement that, that it didn't quite mesh together correctly. Quantities issues going on with uh, with uh, how the ingredients are mixed together, I suppose. But it's I liked it. I didn't yeah. love it. I agree. That's it. It was a fun kind of end of the summer B movie. So in that sense, it fulfilled what I went there for. But, but it's nothing more. Right. It doesn't. It's not going to be a movie. Even like The Gray, which is a movie I know doesn't get talked about as much, I think sort of fulfills this type of thing significantly better. Okay. I didn't, I didn't see the gray. I, any, in general, if something is called gray, the gray, gray man, yeah. I'm just like, ugh, not it was, it was, it was terribly titled. And that was when Liam Neeson was just in, in like five bad looking movies a year. Um, but it, yeah, you know, it, I mean, it, just call it, Super Wolf, just call it Timberman, call it Man versus Wild, whatever. But right. the great, but it, you know, it was a Joe Carnahan film, and it had a really good cast, and it, there's a lot of mood and style in that movie that um, they didn't put in the trailer because they just wanted people to see a Liam Neeson vehicle. Fair enough. Uh, but in the case of this movie, it's fine. I give it a B minus. Um, I had fun, kind of, but I probably will never see it again. Yeah, I, I'm just giving this one a solid B. Yeah, I wasn't mad at it, but I was glad I went on Discount Tuesday. Right, it's, it's like the ideal matinee kind of movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I think if you go to see it in theaters, it, it fulfills the promise enough. I just, I wish, I did want it to be just a little more. Yeah, Charto Copley's really good in it. Um, I, I always like when he shows up in movies, and this is, 
the exact type of thing he should be doing right now, and and he's he's great in the movie. Also, CGI lion, pretty good. Yeah, I mean they're yeah, certainly they're just- hiding it. It's they don't put it front and center, but there's a good mix between real lions when like with the other prides well, and stuff, and especially compared to the last few movies with, with that we have seen CGI beasts like yeah. Predator and RRR. Um, it was re- very refreshing to get something that was pretty realistic in comparison. Yeah, I mean, I thought they, I, it was not a problem for the movie. It was, I wouldn't even put it in the, uh, the problem column for the movie. It was, it was, no, it was a if pretty anything, good I would say it was, it was, uh, probably in the movie's strength. Like, I think they showed mm-hmm. just enough of it that I'm like, yeah, that's a fucked up evil lion, <laughs> but not so much that I can see all of the, all of the seams. Right. All right. Yeah. That's Beast. All right. So let's go ahead and start talking about Shock Corridor. This was the uh, the streaming homework that I assigned us last week. This was released in 1963, and it is streaming now on HBO Max. This was written and directed by uh, Sam Fuller, who's kind of known for being one of the Wildman auteurs of Golden Hollywood. Um, made a lot of low-budget B-pictures, mostly. Uh, and then later in the, the 80s, uh, or 70s and 80s, he also made movies like uh, The Big Red One um, and his killer dog movie. But this movie is about a journalist who wants to win a Pulitzer Surprise. He wants to go undercover in a psychi- psychiatric ward to find out more about a murder of an inmate. So he and his girlfriend concoct this plan where she pretends to be his sister and he pretends to have a incestuous infatuation with her so that he can be admitted um, as a plant to get closer to the other inmates and find out what happened behind closed doors so he can break the story of the century. Uh, while behind doors and while he's, you know, talking to the other inmates and getting to know them, he finds that the different therapies that he puts him, puts himself through, through these other doctors, uh, as well as just the conditions of the situation he's in starts to mount more and more on his psyche as it goes. And this is in a long line of this kind of style of B-movie, of the psychiatric ward movies. Uh, you know, people who go in for one agenda and maybe find out more about themselves than they cared to realize. You know, and this goes all the way up to something like as recent as, as, uh, that, uh, Scorsese did. Shutter Island is Shutter definitely Island, yeah. kind of playing in this territory as well. Um, and yeah, this is, uh, 63, so this is sort of post-noir, but pre-neo-noir. So there's elements of that happening as well. There's a mystery element to it. There's the sort of fracturing of identity and masculinity and all of those sort of tropes. But with more salacious and lurid subject matter happening, because this is also the beginning of the 60s when the production code is crumbling underneath Hollywood's feet and more and more touchy subjects are 
presenting themselves in yeah in movies. Some, there's some wild shit in this movie. I mean, it's a pretty wild movie in general, but shot corridor. I kept having to kind of like check the date of this movie because there's there's kind of this it has kind of a Twilight Zoney sure. vibe to it. Yeah. Um but it also it also breaks that a lot. Um mm-hmm. I, I mean with just the pure subject matter like just like the the way they address the incest uh sort of fake subplot and and some of the issues that the inmates are dealing with are some like some like real shit like there is a uh uh there's a, a black character who i mean it's right out of the fucking Chappelle show sketch where mm-hmm. he's, he's like you know is a white supremacist and uh does, i don't know but there's also these moments where the main character can kind of break through their mental illness uh, in a way that the therapy does not seem able to achieve, that is, that creates this kind of dated view of mental health. I, I don't know, this movie's kind of all over the place. It's, it was definitely interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, just again, because there's just the subject matter they're dealing with felt very progressive, uh, for the time. Um, but some of the way they dealt with it feels very dated now. Yeah, I think there's this weird thing happening, and this is sort of why I'm fascinated with this period of time. And I think I've, I've assigned movies from similar era because of that. Um, mm. but that like end of the fifties to the beginning of the new Hollywood period, like right before that breaks, um, that are not, you know, the big bloated musicals that sunk Hollywood, but yeah, uh, you know, these B pictures, and these, the genre fair from that time, or like the, uh, sub Hitchcockian copycats and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. is there's, and you sort of brought it up. There's this, there's elements of here, of this movie where they're trying to talk about the issues, where they're yeah. tackling things, right? So there's one guy, one in, inmate who, uh, is living in, in his mind, he's living as a, a, a Confederate soldier from the Civil War era, but then when he breaks through in conversation, he they have this, like, long conversation about how, you know, he was driven to 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 his psychosis because he had turned on the United States as a Russian informant for the communists. So there's a lot of, like, post-McCarthy stuff going on in this movie as well. And yeah, the well, the, uh, but the, but then also like immediately after that, he wanders into a room full of nymphomaniac women who rape him. Like, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's played like you know right out of like the the way it's portrayed, not necessarily the act itself, but um, the, yeah. the way it's portrayed is that you know Batman in the '60s show or something. The way that these women are sort of yeah, like, it, 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 like that particular scene came off. Uh, kind of camping. camping now. Yeah. And by today's standards. And uh, by today's standards should be underlined three times um, yes, when yeah, talking yeah. about anything in this movie. But the reason why I think the, the sort of transitory period of time is interesting is because I felt, I feel like a lot of these movies were not necessarily trying to be progressive or, or fit in, you know, topics um, in the same way that something like a prestige Sidney Poitier film would. 
sure, from the yeah, same yeah. time period um, in a more on-the-nose way. But it's almost like you had to sort of violently burst out of the confines of the production code through exploitation to even be able to begin to have these, to touch these subjects. So the only way to talk about these subjects at all um, is through exploitation. And, and subversion. Like this movie's yeah. very subversive and, and honestly, I felt like uh pre Lynchian in a lot of ways. Like there's a lot yeah. of, this sort of like dream imagery and, you know, most of the movie is in black and white, but when these characters sort of explain their, their psychosis or their traumas, uh, it cuts to these interesting like montages in color. Yeah. Um, which is clearly which I, like I, documentary B roll. It's like, Obviously not shot for the intended purpose. Of oh those, yeah, yeah. Of but the, the way it's used is very, um, you know, symbolic and very, uh, again, just sort of this sort of dream imagery. And you know, the way mm-hmm. his girlfriend sort of dances in his ear as he's falling asleep. I, I, you know, I was definitely getting some, um, some major Eraserhead vibes sure. uh, yeah. from just kind of the look of this movie. Well, this so, would have been the I, era when, you know, Lynch would have been a teenager when, when all of these movies are coming out. So this oh, is sure. High, I mean, you know, this, Hitchcock, William Wilder, these are the guys who informed all of his early work. Well, and, and Eraserhead, you know, came out, you know, uh, just a little more than a decade later. Like, right. So it, it's not hard to draw a, a direct line here. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, you can watch this movie and definitely see how it can influence someone who, you know, who is a cinephile at the time. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I also thought a lot about, um, Nightmare Alley while watching this movie. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, we watched the, the remake, the, the Del Toro remake, but that was a film that I think maybe even predates this movie, but both kind of have a similar, idea, you know, this infiltrator, this, this, uh, uh, phony, phony, yeah, sort of, uh, trying to exploit this underclass of people or the, the, you know, these people who are often sort of like, um, seen as less than in society and sort of him having a comeuppance because of it, like, uh, uh, hubris, uh, morality tale. There's this very, you know, like sort of Greek tragedy element to it. And that, mm-hmm. that in particular is what made me, you know, made me think very Twilight Zone-y. It just had that sort of like ironic, like, uh, oh, of course this is, this is what would happen. Right. Yeah. I, I would agree. And again, this is not very far from that exact same era, if not almost exactly in it. Um, yeah, but they couldn't get away with saying incest on TV. No, there's a, they couldn't have gotten away with a lot of things they said in this movie. The movie's almost sort of gleefully running towards the most taboo subjects it can for the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, like, the name Shock Corridor is, is definitely a double entendre. It's, yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, the, he gets shock treatment, but it's also going to be shocking to see, like, yeah, you can definitely see that sort of 
I don't know, sort of marketing built into it. Right. And this was released by a smaller production company. So this was not one of your majors. So this was probably was literally a B film in the sense that you would go see something else that came out that was a bigger movie with bigger stars and you would, this movie would play after for the audience who maybe didn't know anybody in it or maybe had no real interest in Sam Fuller as a director because, you know, this was like pre-auteur theory, but wanted to see the crazy movie with the ninfos or whatever they heard, you know? Yeah. And this was at the same time that, you know, exploitation film was in full swing. And this isn't as, as out there as something like, uh, Russ Meyer. Russ Meyer, yeah. It's not quite a Russ Meyer film. It's not a nudie cutie or, you know, a Herschel Gordon Lewis or, you know, the really crazy low budget pictures that were Yeah, like, the time, it's, but. it's salacious, but it still wants to be played before midnight. Right. Um, yeah. So in a way, it's, it's in between a lot of things. It's kind of having fun in that in between space. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed it for what it was. I, I do think that the, the script kind of loses its nerve a little bit towards the end. Um, and this might just be a modern sensibility sort of thing, but I feel like I, I, I perceive a darker ending <laughs> for this character than even the one he gets. I mean, the ending's pretty dark. It's pretty, it's pretty dark, but, um, and I don't want to spoil it, but you know, there's, there are more loose ends tied together than I necessarily needed. I was, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I expected, yeah, that it would... I know what you're talking about, and yes. I I agree with you. I, th- I also think it starts to spin its wheels in the mud a little bit. A little um, bit, yeah. Like, it's, it's, you know, this movie's maybe 15, 20 minutes longer than it needs to be. I mean, it's only uh, like... It's only like an hour 40, but... Yeah, but it, it kind of hits this sort of. Um, and well, I, I think it's 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 a little overwritten. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, I think that's maybe what I mean is is there's just some stuff that's a little more drawn out than it necessarily needs to be, especially once the movie finds this sort of pattern. Uh, there's this. There's the setup. There's the the them establishing the premise. Which all of that I think is pretty fun and breezy, but then once it gets to this point of him enduring these therapies and and it's it's once it hits this pattern of like there's these three witnesses I need to interview to get the answer, it hits this sort of pattern that could go a little quicker. Like you know some of these conversations are a little drawn out. You know what I mean? In in a way that probably just wouldn't be as much in a more modern sense. It's a little, it leans a little heavily on the plot. I, I understand that they, they wanted to play up the mystery angle a bit more because at the time that would have yeah, been. Yeah, but it doesn't, something it doesn't that, really. No, that, that's what I mean. Like uh, the modern sensibility, the modern way to make this movie is you would go in with the mystery angle and it would yeah. quickly fracture into the psychological drama, um, which is exactly what Shutter Island does and the thousand other movies that came after this. Um, even to, to some degree, a movie like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is more of the, the straight-faced, sober version of this type of thing. Yeah. 
and it becomes more of a character-oriented thing. Whereas this movie, there's a lot of character in it, and but there's there's still something from the time period of the type of noir tradition that it's coming from of piecing together a mystery to sort of keep the audience invested. At this time, I think most writers and filmmakers wouldn't have the the faith in the audience to fully uh, submerge just in mood and tone and that kind of stuff. Because all of that sure. really gets introduced into American filmmaking by way of European filmmaking that would have been happening simultaneously as this movie. Um, but yeah, that, which is exactly like what Lynch does, right? Like he, he draws you in with like, Oh, this is going to be a film noir. And then by the middle of it, you're like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, uh, there are certain things that kind of come off a little bit campy or hokey now. Uh, but I think if, I think actually I didn't even, put that together until you said it, but if you think of this in terms of like, oh, this is like a long Twilight Zone episode. And and maybe that's why I felt like it felt a little stretched out, because to, to me, I felt like this was very Twilight Zone-y. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, in the kind of way where it's like, you know, we have sort of this bigger budget and we can kind of push things a little bit more because it's a movie. Right, and um, we can introduce more characters and we can Delve more into but plot. the core of the story. I felt like, yeah, we could we could have wrapped this up in in a you know a tight forty five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there's a version of it, an edit, if you wanted to do it as like something like that, that probably would maybe even be more fulfilling that way. But yeah, um, I, I, but at the same time, I I I do appreciate this movie. Taking some wild swings, like yeah, I mean, it's trying wack. To, it's a wackadoo movie. Yeah, I mean, even even for today's standards, like if you set up a plot where I'm going to pretend to incest my incest molest <laughs> my sister to get locked into a mental hospital, you you know you'd get laughed out of the pitch room. Right. I mean, that is that is quite the story. I mean, he could have it could have been and that's any, the, it could have been opening anything. scene. Yeah, they could have went with a number of things, but they went straight to that, which maybe that's saying more about the character early on. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, but that's his try to get hired as an orderly or something. <laughs> right, or even just, you know, uh wander down the street talking to yourself or something. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, it it's a cool weird swing in 60s kind of movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fun. It's, you know, I, I feel like we kind of say this all the time with movies, you know, sort of pre-70s. If you're into movies of this time period and you're into film history and you're into film noir and you're, you know, like you're into that, you'll you'll enjoy this. There's plenty to get out of it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for a strictly more modern audience, this might be, a, you know, a tougher pill to swallow. This isn't Citizen Kane. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot more ragged and rough edged than that, but that's sort of why it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that is that. And what movie did you have assigned for us next episode? I'm very excited that for the next episode, we are going to watch Bone Tomahawk, uh, which is a movie that I've heard a lot about and I've wanted to see it for quite some time. 
Um, but it's, it's never really popped up on the streamers. Right now it is available on Tubi. Mm-hmm. So that is what we are watching for the next episode. All right. Uh, yeah, and I believe that came out in 2015. Sort of a horror western. Yeah. And if anybody has anything to say about anything we talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also contact us at our social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram, at mcguffinpod. Leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review over at whichever podcatcher is the one you use to listen to us on, uh, primarily iTunes and Spotify, uh, but also Google Podcasts and Stitcher and all the other things. You can read my reviews that I do weekly for the Idaho State Journal by looking up Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews on Google or Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment page. Follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at BC Cassidy. And be sure to read the other articles and reviews by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. You can also follow me on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Uh, also, if you're interested in seeing me perform live, I do a show called Improv vs. Stand-Up at Mockingbird Improv uh, in Liberty Station here in San Diego. Okay, and that is the episode. I am impotent, and I like it! Bye.